If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator. If you are a marketing executive who wants to deliver bottom line impact by identifying and connecting with revenue generating customers, then this is the show for you. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe, CEO of Ambition Data. Each week, I bring you the leaders behind the customer-centric revolution who share their expert advice. Are you ready to accelerate? Then let's go. Welcome, everyone. We often talk about high-value customers on this show in the digital environment, but today's show is about measuring the customer experience offline. And to help me discuss this topic is my very dear friend, Gary Angel. Gary is the CEO at Snazzy Tech Company, Digital Mortar, and the author of Measuring the Digital World. Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks, Allison. Nice to be talking with you again. Can you tell us more about how you arrived at the concept for Digital Mortar and where did you start in your background? Because as you know, most people of our generation didn't actually get a degree in analytics in school. How did you end up here? Well, my degree is in philosophy, so that's a natural pass to where I am today, right? <laughs> I, you know, I was a self-taught computer programmer. Like, like a lot of people back then, I was kind of a hobbyist. And I actually got into programming before I got into analytics and uh, did, did a fair amount of fairly serious programming, but ended up, for whatever reason, gravitating toward very analytic types of programs. And I actually uh, did a startup uh, focused on commodity and stock trading and went from there into more consumer analytics and eventually ended up focusing a lot more on the analytics and the programming. But what really led to digital mortar was, you know, I, I spent nearly two decades, I, I think, in digital analytics and and uh, loved it. I mean, I think digital analytics is fascinating. It's been an incredible field. It's grown tremendously. Um, I have to agree. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it really is. a. a I think it's funny because when I started in digital analytics, we really envied the analytics that people were doing in sort of traditional offline ways. We looked at the direct response folks and saw how sophisticated they were. And, and I think we, we really admired that. But over the course of the, the two decades or so I spent in digital analytics, I think digital analytics got to be the most sophisticated analytics area out there. And I think in a lot of ways, offline folks look at what we do in digital and really admire it. And I think from my perspective, what really drove digital mortar was, you know, I was, I was doing digital analytics. We had a a very large client that uh, uh, brought us in actually on an offline shopper measurement problem. They'd, they'd hired a company, they'd done a bunch of measurement of shopper journeys in store and they were struggling to use it. Um, and they asked us to take a look at the data. And uh, when I took a look at it, I just found it fascinating. Uh, the idea that you could actually track shopper measurements in physical environments, um, I thought was really interesting and really cool. And I looked at that space and saw a set of companies who in many respects felt to me like the early days of digital going back to the, the late 90s, engineering driven, co- driven companies that maybe understood the technology they were deploying, but didn't have any really good sense of analytics or how to use it. So to me, it looked like a place where I could bring 
a lot of experience about how to do customer behavioral analytics, but to a lot of green field. And, and going back to my days as a programmer, I always wanted to create a technology company. The chance to really build software is super appealing to me. So that, that's what really led to Digital Mortar. Oh, that, that's a great story. Now, I know from our previous background together uh, how much time you spent in the, the book that you eventually wrote, which was uh, how much time you spent measuring the digital world. Can you talk a little bit about the some of the techniques that evolved in the digital space and how they are applying to the retail space? Sure. Uh, boy, that, that's a long, big conversation. But I think from my perspective, there are a couple of real highlight points that people should understand about the evolution of digital analytics that I think are widely interesting and very applicable to the way things are going now in shopper measurement from a retail perspective. When we started in digital analytics, all the focus was on measuring pages on the website. You know, the, the standard report that people loaded up was the most popular pages on the website. And all the metrics that we kicked around were about the website. The website had X number of views. The website had X number of hits. And I think over time, probably the single most important thing in the evolution of digital analytics was the realization that, yes, the website is important. It's a tool. But what you're really measuring is shoppers and customers. You care about customers. That's what really matters from a marketing perspective. The website is just a thing. It, it's just a friggin' tool. You know, it, <laughs> Music to my ears. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think we both feel that way. And I, I think so much of what I saw as the critical evolution in digital analytics was that evolution from you know, focus on the tool that you're measuring uh, to focus on the shopper and customer. And, and I think, you know, along the way, we figured out a lot of different ways to do that. One of the techniques that I got very well known for and, and probably you know, bored people to death with on a regular basis was two-tiered segmentation. But the idea was really simple and I think still really important, which is that to understand shoppers, you need to understand who they are and your relationship with them. That's the traditional kind of segmentation that people have done. Going back to my early days and doing some direct response marketing for a long, long time, but what's interesting, and I think what really evolved as we started doing digital analytics, and I think is just as true with what we do at Digital Mortar, it's not enough just to know the big broad categories of who the shopper is, how long they've been a customer with you, what their demographics are, you know, what their income is, what their occupation is. All that stuff's cool and interesting and nice and it allows you to do a better job talking to them. But so much of what you need to know about them when you're a retailer or really any kind of company is what that person cares about right now, what they're doing. And so much of what we did with digital analytics was to understand what the person's behavior on the website meant for what they cared about now, what they're looking at, what they're thinking about, what they're trying to decide about, and helping them make that decision. Um, so the second tier of the segmentation and two-tiered segmentation is a visit-based segmentation. It's the activities, that they're what they're trying to do and what they're trying to accomplish. And I always thought, I still believe, that the really interesting things about you know, thinking about how successful you are with a customer come at the intersection of knowing who that customer is and what your relationship with them is and what they're trying to accomplish right now. And so I think that was a big evolution in, in digital analytics was the realization that, that, A, set, that, that shoppers matter, not websites, and, and B, that if you're really going to think about shoppers, you've got to think about segmentation and maybe you have to change the way you think about segmentation a little bit. And those big, broad, traditional demographic categories aren't really what we work with anymore. 
Yeah, I, I think that behavioral segmentation is what we often see is quite predictive of future behavior. And we also see it when we match uh, frequently to who are the most valuable customers. We're seeing that people who are engaging frequently may also be valuable customers. So that's a it's a good thing in so many ways in from the digital space to the offline space. In other words, if I know who you are and I know what you're doing online, then maybe I can take that into the store. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you track people or how you, I I don't know if I want to start with tracking, but tell us a little bit more about how you understand behavior in the offline environment now that we framed it in the online environment. Well, that's the thing. I mean, in that online environment, you really have a rich understanding of what people care about right now. You're seeing every friggin' web page that they load, right? You can, you know, how long they spent on that page, you know, their navigational paths, you know, everything they looked at. You know what they chose not to look at. You know where they went. You know which content loops produce action and which don't. And that's a really rich behavioral set. But what I realized when I came to the offline part of the world is that for most stores, what they know is what they sold and how many people came in the door. And everything that happened in between is a complete black box. And, you know, I actually tell it this way to sometimes people I'm I'm talking to. I say, you know, imagine that you came into my office and you said, I have this wonderful digital analytics tool. It measures how many conversions we got on the website and it measures how many visits. (laughs) I would would laugh and kick you out, right? That's pathetic. You can't optimize the customer experience with a tool that gives you two metrics. And that's really what stores have. And I think... So, so the real point of what we bring to the table with Digital Mortar is measuring what happened inside. Where do shoppers go? Where do they spend time? What do they look at? What do they pass by and don't look at? Do they have interactions with staff? And ultimately, what results in a conversion and what doesn't? And what does that conversion look like? The actual measurement of that turns out to be pretty tricky. I think one of the things that, that is maybe most challenging about our business is that unlike, say, and even in analytics, you know, a long, long time ago, probably before most listeners are, are even aware of, in web analytics, we actually had two different collection technologies. One was web logs and the other was tags. And over time, everyone shifted to tags and it made it really did make things a lot better and a lot easier. But both those collection mechanisms were probably easier and more straightforward than what we deal with on the physical side. We use actually a whole array of different technologies. Um, some are appropriate to big, large spaces. Some appropriate to small spaces. Some do. Some are good for certain kinds of tracking, but not others. But by and large, we have. And I'm happy to talk that through. We have like four or five different technologies that, in different situations, can be used to help you measure the shopper journey in store. And a lot of times, we find ourselves putting different pieces of those together, actually putting hardware in the store, which is kind of a pain in the ass, but it's the way you do it. Um, and what those let you do is actually give you, they, they give you data that's not dissimilar to what we're used to on the website. Uh, they literally tell you at 10.33 a.m. and 15 seconds, the shopper was here in this store. Three seconds later, here's where they were in the store. Three seconds later, here's where they were in the store. And you take that journey data map it to the store, and then hopefully you can figure out interesting things about what the shopper was interested in and and how the store was meeting their needs. So let's talk a little bit about that tech stack. If I want to measure the offline experience and I want to use the rigor of what we've learned in the digital analytics space, what are the fundamental pieces that I need to have in the stack? Yeah, so at the easiest level, although it's not really the best, is Wi-Fi measurement. Every store or every facility 
that provides Wi-Fi can actually do geolocation tracking. It's not super accurate. It misses a fair number of people. But most modern Wi-Fi systems can actually geolocate people based on the signal from their phones. Um, one nice thing about that is it's super easy to deploy. You don't need any hardware. Um, it's remarkably inexpensive. It's just not very good measurement. But that's one place to start. And particularly for larger facilities, if you have a stadium, if you have an airport, if you have a shopping mall, that's not a bad place to do measurement because you don't need a lot of positional accuracy. Going back to our early days of digital, we always talked about trending data. Not necessarily looking at the actual counts, but looking at the trends. Wi-Fi-based measurement is kind of like that. One step up from that, um, we do a lot of more sophisticated electronic tracking with a device we call passive electronic sniffers. Uh, these are made by a company down in Los Angeles called iView. Um, what they do is it's very similar to Wi-Fi. They track smartphones, but they do it with a much higher level of positional accuracy. They capture a lot more phones. So you get significantly better measurement across the board. They're very inexpensive devices. They're not very visible. They're like credit card size. They're pretty easy to install in the store. And they give you pretty good journey tracking of the way shoppers are moving through the store. If you need even more accuracy than that, if you want to capture 100% of your population, including people who either don't have smartphones or have their Wi-Fi radios turned off, if you want to capture things like demographics, if you want to capture display interaction, video camera is actually the most common technique for doing that. Um, stores are heavily wired these days with cameras, mostly for security purposes. Sometimes those cameras can be repurposed for measurement. There's also a whole bunch of vendors who make cameras that are entirely dedicated to measurement and work in a variety of, of conditions. One of the things I've been learning in the last year and a half is how complicated the real world is. And, you know, you look at things like different lighting conditions and different crowding conditions and different ceiling heights, and all of those things can actually make a difference when it comes to camera. But that's a really interesting technology that, that particularly for smaller spaces where you need 100% accuracy is a really good way to go. Um, then there's mobile applications. Mobile applications are actually a great geolocation platform. You can drop a little bit of code from a third-party library into, a, into your mobile app, and you will actually have really good data about the way people are navigating their physical spaces. Um, and that's super powerful. It's one of our favorite data sources, and it's very inexpensive to implement. And then lastly, RFID, which is used for a variety of purposes in retail. But um, you know, if you drop an active RFID tag on something like a shopping cart or a shopping basket, you can track that cart or basket through the space, which often is almost as good as tracking the shopper. So that's the range of technologies. And, and that probably gives you a sense of how many different things there are. But the thing is, all these technologies work. None of them are perfect. Um, this is still kind of an immature space. They can be combined to do a pretty darn good job of actually measuring shopper movement through spaces. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So I understand that there are ways that I can gather information and pull it together to understand the offline world with as much accuracy or perhaps uh, getting close to the accuracy that I might get in the digital space. What would I do with that? What kind of examples would you have of applications of that analysis? Yeah, well, that's really the crux, right? And I think one of the really interesting things about this space is because it's so new, uh, people have those questions. You know, I, I know when we first started doing digital analytics, that's always what people wanted to know. Okay, I can get all this data off my website, but what can I do with it? And that question kind of went away, right? I mean, people figured it out, but it takes time to figure it out. It's, it's really the most important question. It's not a bad question because we've all seen people spend a lot of money on technology and then have no friggin' idea what to do with it. Um, I think there's, there's maybe three major places that you can really drive value with this kind of analytics. One is flat-out operational improvement. 
any, any real world facility is, turns out to be pretty complex. And there's a lot of ways that you can take this data just to make the basic operations better, whether that's around staffing or whether that's around the layout of the facility. Uh, there's just opportunities for understanding people movements and how that plays out and making things work more smoothly. Uh, the second part of it is customer experience. You know, these days, retailers really care a lot more about experience than they did 10 or 15 years ago. And, and they have to. I think one of the things that was a quote from a retail analyst that really stuck with me and resonated. And he said, the biggest change in retail these days is that you have to make people want to come to stores because they don't have to come to stores anymore. You know, 20 years ago, if we needed something, we had to go to the store to buy it. Nowadays, almost anything we can buy online. So if you want people to come to your stores, you have to make them want to go. And that means customer experience is important. And if you think about what I said earlier about what you, the measurement that people have, well, if they're measuring door counting and they're measuring point of sale, they know what they sold people. They don't know anything about the experience they delivered. So measuring that in-store experience, I think it's a big part of this. And then customer value. I know that's a huge deal to you, but I think it's critical. You know, if you think about it, if you are a on-the-channel business, a big piece of how you figure out customer value and how you understand what kind of value a person actually has is understanding the entire scope of their business with you. And that certainly includes what they do in store. And obviously, you know, so many things stores do around loyalty programs are geared toward understanding customer value in store, but you're always only capturing a fraction of that story. And particularly if you want to understand customer value at earlier stages of the value chain, before people are part of your loyalty program, or if you don't have a loyalty program, this kind of in-store measurement is absolutely Absolutely critical, really understanding which customers deliver value and how customers split their share between online and offline. I like that you said at earlier stages, because I can think personally of times when I've walked into a store to understand what that brand was, because I happened to be seeing it everywhere and to explore it. And then I either had an experience that wasn't very welcoming, or I had uh, an experience that was too welcoming, or I might have had something just right in the middle. And it does affect how I relate to that brand and whether I buy or whether I continue to interact with them. But in many cases, the offline store is sometimes the first introduction if you don't know it exists online, uh, unless perhaps maybe you're super active on social media and you're familiar with everything going on. Because <laughs> Right. I mean, you, you, one of the things that I think is really interesting and, and kind of gratifying, too, is that you see some really good Internet brands these days starting to open up stores. And, and I think that speaks to the fact that that in-person experience is an incredibly powerful branding experience. You know, when we used to do, we used to do a lot of pretty sophisticated analytics around a lot of different problems. And retention and churn was one of the problems that, that I studied pretty frequently. And invariably, when we built churn models, the things that drove churn were often in-person interactions. You know, the interactions you had with, I had a terrible call center experience, or I went into the store and they were rude to me, or I had to stand in line for friggin' 45 minutes, and I'm never going back there again. Those in-person experiences are tremendously impactful brand builders for good and ill. And I think, you know, it's, it's both sides of that. And I do agree, too. I think, you know, people sometimes assume that high-value customers, that they captured all of them. Well, that's not true, obviously. There's constant churn in that population. There's figuring out who the new potential high-value customers are and how you get them into your program so that you can make sure that they get the kind of personalized attention you want. And 
I think this kind of in-store measurement allows you to sort of expand down your reach in terms of understanding who shoppers are, not just the people who are your absolute top-tier loyalty program credit card-holding shoppers, but all the rest of the people. Delivering great experiences to those people obviously matters, too. Um, and I think it, it allows you really to understand much better where those people are, where they fit in that broader value chain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, you said there were three pieces. So we talked about the operational improvement and the customer experience. Is there a third one? I don't want to miss a nugget here. Uh, really, I was talking about value as the experience there. I mean, I, I think, you know, that understanding customer value, understanding the actual experience of the customer, those are two kind of different things, right? I mean, from my perspective, a lot of times you can understand the kind of experience the customer had in the store. Was it a good experience or was it a bad experience? without necessarily understanding their potential value um, or their value to you. I feel like those are two pretty separate analytic activities. Got it. Got it. Okay. So what kind of examples, uh, like specific examples of, let's take the first one, the labor optimization. Um, you know, How would I see that being applied in an actual store? What would happen? Yeah, you know, this, this really surprised us in some ways. I think one of the first analytics projects we ever did as we got into this space was around labor optimization. And uh, coming out of the digital world, you don't have that component, right? But in a store, A, labor is one of your largest variable costs. Um, it's one of the things you can control. It's not a fixed sunk cost, uh, but it's a big portion of your cost structure. It's also a huge deal um, in terms of the actual customer experience, right? I think we all have personal, anecdotal, direct experience of how much difference it makes when you have a great associate versus you're getting ignored by associates or, or you're getting plagued by, as you mentioned, maybe a little too friendly associates who won't let you do because they're on commission. Um, well, one of the nice things about this kind of tracking technology is not only does it allow you to track shoppers, it actually actually allows you to track your staff, too. And, um, you know, you can do that at a very detailed level, but you can also do it at a more aggregate level. And in that first project, one of the things we did was basically just look section by section, by time of day, by day of week, what the ratio of shoppers to associates was. There's a metric in retail called STARS, shopper to associate ratio, um, but it's typically measured at a day level. They have a door count and they have the number of associates. They divide the two and that's the shopper to associate ratio. But with this kind of measurement, you can take it down to a much finer grain level. You can look down at like a 10-minute interval at a particular area of the store. And for this particular project, we were, we were focused on which sections of the store were most vulnerable to under and overstaffing. And probably not surprisingly, it's an athletic apparel store. One of the things we found was that the shoe wall was extremely vulnerable to understaffing. And there were a couple threshold points where when the shopper to associate ratio climbed above those points, it got above, for instance, like you know, 10 shoppers to one associate was one of the inflection points where the conversion rates dropped precipitously. And what we could see looking at shopper journeys was when the shoe wall got that crowded without being appropriately staffed, they just lost customers. People just friggin' left. They didn't buy shoes. Um, and there were really two inflection points in that curve. And what was even more interesting was that there were some pretty consistent days of week and times of day on those days when this happened. So adjusting their staffing model so that they actually had the appropriate number of associates relative to those times of day and those days of week really made a huge difference. I mean, this is one of those things where sometimes with measurement, it's hard to establish hard ROI, but you find places 
where you are just flat out either losing customers because you can't service them or you have staff sitting around doing nothing, um, those are easy places to find and identify opportunities to save money and, and drive real hard ROI with this. And it's one of the things that convinced me that you know almost as important as the shopper measurement on this is the ability to measure what your associates are doing and, and put the two together in ways that really allow you to tune store operations. And there's so many wins around that in the sense that not only are you improving your store performance, but you're sure as heck building customer satisfaction too. Nobody likes to be in an area and not be able to get the help they need. So I really think it's one of those fairly rare cases when you can actually improve your bottom line and improve customer satisfaction too. And that's always pretty sweet. That's such a great crisp example. And I can see how they made the immediate fix in staffing. Were they also hungry to understand more about the type of associate or the behavior of the associate so that they could perhaps further classify whether, not just whether the associate was physically present, but whether they were engaging and interacting versus they were standing there but not doing enough. Yeah, you know, it's funny. That project was very focused at a higher level, but we've done some work since then that really takes that kind of analytics down to the point of looking at things like, what are your associates doing? One really intriguing part of physical retail is that it's highly local. You can think you have great policies in place, but it's not like a website where pretty much every customer gets exactly the same experience. And that's totally true, right? You can have bottlenecks and performance differences, but by and large, you're delivering a pretty seamless experience to people. But when you have 500 or 600 stores, um, you've got thousands and thousands of staffs, many of whom have pretty high churn and may not have been adequately trained. And it's really important to realize how local the experience is. And um, with this kind of technology, you can measure what people are doing. You know, are they are they getting distracted? Uh, one of the really interesting challenges a lot of stores face these days is stores are becoming much more on the channel, meaning that people are often uh, people often buy things on the web and then pick up in store, um, or they buy things on the web and return in store. Well, that takes staff, right? So associates are often getting their time taken up handling omnichannel chores, which can impact the actual servicing of customers in store. So we've done work around things like, you know, how often are staff interacting with people, which staff are best, which teams are best, how impactful omnichannel experiences are on the store experiences. There's just a ton of, of analytics here that cross everything from operational efficiency to customer experience to real omnichannel optimization. And all of it involves that ability to measure both staff and shoppers in store. That's fascinating, especially the point about the distraction of the in-store returns. That's one of those second-order operations you don't always think of. It sounds on the surface like, oh, you can return things in-store. Great. But you don't think about the time that the staff is no longer serving new buyers because they're handling in-store returns. Yeah, they, you know, you tend, you tend to look at those staff hours as just available. And of course, in one sense, they are, and in one sense, they're not. There are real impacts to that. And, you know, it's, that, that's such a fascinating area. And I think part of what makes it fascinating is people are still learning about it. People are still figuring out what the impacts are and what it means to bring somebody into the store. And can you deliver, you know, is that another potential shopping opportunity and how can you make it? But the impacts on staff are real and significant. I think a lot of stores are really just starting to discover there are costs to doing that as well. There are real benefits. I don't want to deny that. I think it's actually a great thing to do, but you do have to understand that you know those hours aren't necessarily free. And most times in, in stores, associates aren't just standing around twiddling their thumbs. So um, when, when you give them another task to do, there's implications to that. 
So I'm going to ask you a question, which is somewhat dangerous, and you can choose to answer it or not. Uh, the question is, years ago, I saw a technology where you would walk up to a, a digital display, and it would read your sex and your age, and it would put, or like approximate your age, and the display would change to show you someone who looked like you in, in the clothing. So it was actually your race, your sex, and your age. So the question is, do you find in the course of analysis, when you're looking at staff and looking at effectiveness of sales and conversion, do people indeed, or do you measure that people buy from people who look like them? You know, that's a really fascinating question. And I have to say, we haven't measured that. And I'll say two things about that, right? I mean, we usually don't have the data down to that level. Two, yeah, I've always gone to Abercrombie and Fish stores to buy from people who look like me. <laughs> 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 you know, I think one of the tricks to that is people have an idealized version of themselves, right? I mean, we, we don't really know how we look. We, we have this idea of ourselves, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, from, from 20 or 30 years ago, it's still probably better than we looked 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so I'm not sure how, you know, in one sense, I'm not sure how effective. That's a fascinating thing. Um, but no, we haven't looked at that. But I, a couple things that I think are maybe more straightforward, and, and there are some applications to that. I think we do work around things like digital signage, and there are opportunities to do much better jobs, I think, customizing, personalizing, and tuning the digital signage. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people treat digital signage as if it's you know, just a, another way to, to put a sign up in the store. And they don't really take advantage of the capabilities to tune it. Um, and that can be down at the personal level, but it can also just be at the local level, you know, figuring out if you're in the San Francisco store, that there's a likelihood that the types of clothing, the models, uh, the people you want to put up there are different for that. And I think people have underexplored the opportunities for technologies like digital signage. I also think that, you know, if you think about things like staffing, some of the opportunities you have, when you can start to measure what kind of person actually performs better, what kind of teams actually perform better. You know, if you think about a staffing model, in some respects, we think about it as similar to a sports team. You probably don't want every single staffer to be the perfect extroverted customer support person because there are other tasks that staffers have to do. And so you probably need a blend of people, but you can also look at the profiles of people who makes a good associate, right? I mean, when you look at the way people spend time, which people tend to be most effective, which people tend to interact the most with shoppers, you can profile those things and, and look for those kinds of personalities. I think there are things in hiring that people can do significantly better using this kind of information. Anytime you have a success metric, you can do a better job tuning. And I think one of the challenges that people who have done hiring and retail have had is they don't really have a success metric for what works in the long run. And I think careful measurement can actually provide that in this case. So, no, I think what you point out is really fascinating. And I'm sure to some extent it's true. It's also really hard to measure, right? I mean, that's one of those things where we generally don't have the data on either side to support that kind of measurement. But we focused on a lot of problems that I think are in some ways similar and, and probably a little more tractable. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's lean a little bit into the customer experience examples. Uh, we've talked a little bit about digital signage and, and staffing. In the customer experience side, 
are there examples where a business in some form understands who a high value customer is when they walk in the store? Or is that still a future dream in retail? You know, it depends. A lot of times that is still a future dream. I think that some of the technologies I talked about give you the ability to do that. Probably the preeminent one for doing that kind of omnichannel join is mobile application. Um, If you can give people a reason to download your mobile app and use it in store, you have the ability to do that kind of join. And when you do that, um, you can collect some incredibly valuable information. You know, we've done that kind of work, not just in retail, actually, but even in some other cases. You know, so we, we did some work for a sports team looking at, you know, people buy season tickets, but which games do they actually come for? And what do they do when they show up at the stadium? And, um, a lot of times in sporting situations, you, you know, mobile apps are very popular. People log into your Wi-Fi. There's a lot of ways, actually, to de-anonymize people. And you actually can take the data down to the CRM level, which is really, really cool. When you have data that tells you about what someone looked at in a store but didn't buy, um, that's obviously incredibly relevant. That's the kind of thing we do all the time on the website. Being able to do it in-store is even more powerful. So there are, there are places where you can do that. But the truth is that nine times out of ten, and except for mobile app and maybe opted in Wi-Fi, the data is anonymous. So in a lot of ways, you can look at customer patterns. You can understand which of those customers have potentially interesting behaviors in store, which look like high-value patterns. But if they're not part of a loyalty program, if they didn't use your mobile app, it's still essentially anonymous data. Got it. So people don't have to worry too much about their identity leaking out as stores try to customize the customer experience. But I think in some cases, perhaps with loyalty programs, I've already authorized certain companies that I particularly like to know me. And I want them to know me because I want certain benefits from that loyalty program. Are loyalty programs making it into the customer offline experience? You know, I don't think nearly as much as they should. And I'm a big fan of loyalty programs. I think almost everybody in the analytics community is, right? I mean, loyalty programs are interesting because they're partly a blend of delivering better experiences to people and and really optimizing customer value. They're also very analytic, right? For certainly in grocery and, and for a lot of other industries, people do loyalty programs primarily for the data they can collect. So most analysts love them, and I'm certainly in that camp. One of the things I, I love is when people take advantage of loyalty opportunities, even outside of loyalty programs. I'm a big advocate of what I call surprise-based loyalty concepts, which is you can take the same analytics about thinking about customers and what creates incremental lift in customers to deliver them incentives, surprises, delight experiences, uh, rewards, uh, outside the context of a formal program. And I'm actually a big believer in that. In some ways, one of the drawbacks to a formal loyalty program is that what we've seen when we measured that is a lot of times the incremental lift is a little disappointing because you tend to be rewarding people who are already 100% committed to you. And, you know, I go to Starbucks like everybody else and I cash in my rewards, but darn it, after I've got all those points, I feel like I earned my reward, right? It doesn't, it doesn't feel like a surprise and delight moment to me. Um, but, you know, if, if I walk into a place and they say, oh, Mr. Angel, thank you so much. Uh, have a croissant today on us. You know, that's a surprise and delight moment because I didn't feel 
Like, you know, I had to go through this arduous march to get it. And because on the store side, it can be targeted analytically, you can make sure that you're giving those rewards to people where you really think you can enhance their value, you can introduce them to a new product, you can get them to try something they haven't done before, or you can enhance your share of wallet with them. Um, so there are, I think there are opportunities for people to take analytics and to take this kind of deep measurement and apply it to deliver experiences to people that are very much like loyalty experiences, but are maybe outside the context of a traditional loyalty program. I think that's one of the biggest opportunities out there in loyalty is for people to expand those loyalty concepts beyond the people they've signed up in their programs. And I think this kind of measurement is really one big step along the way to doing that. Yeah, I, I really like that application. And I have heard of only one example where that's actually being done, uh, where American Airlines is using eagles. And you have a certain number of eagles that appear when you are facing the customer service agent. The customer service agent can see these eagles, and you can't, but it guides them into what kind of surprise and delight they might give you. So for example, if you're a really good customer and you've had just a horrible run of delayed flights or other issues, <laughs> then your score will will tell them that it's like like this would be a good time to surprise and delight someone. Uh, but that's that's generally within the context of is there an upgrade available? And you've got twenty people to pick from. Who should you pick? Uh, so it's it's arming the front line. Well, that's the beauty of that too, right? Because there's literally no cost. To that and you know airlines are a great example and I think airlines are also a good example of the way loyalty programs can become a trap because you know so I, I live in San Francisco I have my hub airlines right there's there's a couple airlines that I have to fly a lot because they're based out of San Francisco so I'm all, I always have a lot of status with those airlines and when I fly on another airline a lot of times I'm not in their loyalty program so I get treated you know awfully and and I think not only am I not an advocate of that but I think one of the things that you can do a much better job of if you, if you can understand customer value of potential share wall is delivering those loyalty experiences to people who could be potentially high value, but who aren't part of your loyalty program right now. And I think airlines consistently miss those opportunities, um, A, because they have a hard time tracking that. But even when they, I think a lot of times they could do a much better job understanding how frequent a flyer I am, even if I'm not a frequent flyer with them. And I think that's the kind of, that's the kind of traveler you might want to target those surprise and delight experiences to as well. That's something I do not see a lot of companies do, but I think it's a tremendous opportunity for people from a marketing perspective. It's just a way to use analytics that's a little outside the box, but delivers a lot of the same loyalty concepts, but is designed not just to do it for the people that you've already proven are giving you 70, 80, or 90% of their share law, but for people who have a large wallet and who might give you that kind of share. I completely agree. And Gary, I think that is the point of a loyalty program is not to target the people who already love you, but to target the people who you want to become high value. And I will include the link to that American Airlines story in the show notes for this podcast. I think they are fairly sensitive to not just rewarding high value customers, but calculating who's on the upswing and who do they want to become uh, really their partner, their, their long-term high value customer. Because as you said, that group is always churning. And it's such an incredibly important part for any brand, because they support so much of the revenue stream for a brand. Yeah, no question. I think that's really good practice. And I think across the board, there's a lot of industries that could take advantage of similar kinds of things. Certainly in our core, in our core market retailers, I think there's a tremendous opportunity 
to expand those kinds of loyalty concepts beyond just your really small group of core loyal shoppers. And uh, I, I believe that's always one of the one of the areas that people underutilize analytics to really take advantage of what they know about shoppers to deliver better experiences. I agree. I agree. Okay. So we've talked about quite a few things here. Let's say that I am sold on offline retail and I have some retail stores. What is the first thing that I should do? And should I, should I be thinking strategically first or should I just get the hardware in there? Where should I start? That's a really good question. I do think this is something where, hey, thinking strategically first, understanding your use cases. You know, we always talk about that in analytics. It's true, though. You really ought to understand what this is for. And you know, when we worked through some of the examples, that's a tiny subset of the things that might be of interest. I've been doing a lot of work recently, for instance, in queue control and queue management. And if queues are an area that you're focused on, that's great. If associate optimization is what you're focused on, that's fine. If store design is what you're thinking about, you're rolling out a concept store and you want to understand if it's really working better, that's great. Understanding what you're about is probably the, the first thing, thinking about where you might get value from this. The second thing is technology matters in this case. It's not off the shelf. It's not standardized. It's not like you know, tagging has become in digital analytics. We do have to understand how the technology applies to your business. I have a whole, there's a whole series of posts I've written about technology um, that I think you know, people might want to consume on the Digital Border blog. Um, yeah, so those are great. And I think one nice thing is you know, we're not technology provider in the sense of the data collection. We don't make cameras. We don't make the digital the electronic snippers. We don't even do the, the mobile app third-party device. So we're independent in that way. And uh, we work with all those technologies. So I think we have pretty interesting things to say. Understanding the technology is probably the next thing to do. And, and then hopefully people will call us. I, I really think uh, uh, we, we do really cutting edge, analytically driven, business-oriented measurement here. I think we do it better than anybody in the world. And uh, are, seriously, if you're interested in this stuff, I think uh, I hope people will A, check out our website and B, give us a call because we love this stuff. We love working on it. And I think we do it really well, too. So, Gary, how can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out? Well, hey, check the website, digitalmortar.com. That, that's a good place to start. And uh, like any website, it's loaded up with opportunities for us to click a contact button and call us. Um, or, hey, just if you're listening to this podcast, you can friggin' just drop an email. So, gary.angel at digitalmortar.com. Okay. Um, and we'll include that email address again in the show notes. So let's summarize a little bit about what we talked about. Um, first, we, we kind of dug into what has, not so much what has changed, but why should you care about offline measurement? And what was really interesting here was that the offline measurement used to be the leading place where we would get inspiration on digital, but now that's reversed and digital has grown so strong in measurement that the digital innovations are now influencing the offline measurement. And nowhere can you see that better than in the techniques we talked about on with Gary on this show. And also, I highly recommend if you really un- want to understand not just digital behavior, but understanding customer behavior, the two-tiered segmentation that Gary mentions uh, is, is really well outlined in his book, Measuring the Digital World. Again, we'll link to that in the show notes uh, and, and a fantastic technique that we use a lot. In that section, we talked about why am I caring about offline digital measurement? And then in that piece, we also got into uh, the different 
technologies for the stack. We talked about Wi-Fi measurement, doing geolocation. We talked about a company called iView that's tracking smartphones and getting to a greater degree of accuracy. We talked about uh, mobile applications being a fantastic source of really rich information and even being able to tie that back into your CRM. And then we also talked about RFID tagging on the cart or basket, which becomes like watching a visit through a website, being that the visitor is behind that. Did I miss anything in that first part of the summer, Gary? Uh, you know, the only thing is, I think on the technology side, camera is another huge portion of what people use to track that. So there are companies out there that do a really nice job with measurement cameras, and there's even sometimes opportunities to combine what you're doing with security. So that, that is another core technology in the space. Excellent. Excellent. And then we talked about the impact and there were a couple examples. They really fell into two or three different flavors. We talked about the operations of the business and uh, staffing, of course, being the largest variable cost and how well the presence of your shoppers, how well the organization is staffing for shopper presence in that the presence of associates in key areas of the store is directly related to conversion. You talked about the shoe wall and the 10 to 1 shopper to associate ratio just saw conversions drop off a cliff. And I can imagine myself standing at a shoe wall with 10 other people fighting for one associate. Sure, the first thing I'm going to do is, you know, go to the website or walk out. There's really no reason to stand in line like that anymore. And then you alluded to the Q measurement as well, which again, I think is probably reflecting our current modern impatience with lines. And we just want it now. It's so much easier to, to just buy now. So in that section, we then went on and we talked about the loyalty programs. I thought that was very interesting. The application of loyalty programs being not just looking at how do you reward people who are already giving us consistent behavior, but how do you look for that surprise and delight opportunity, particularly with people who are not yet your high value customers. And doing this through the perhaps through, Gary, did you say camera identification could do it or, or there was a tool that would help you understand who was coming in or do they actually need to be purchasing for you to identify? You know, that depends on what kind of techniques you're going to use. Sometimes that's purchase based. Um, sometimes, you know, if you think about it in a store, if you understand where someone shopped, if you know that they were shopping in some, say, really high, high purchase value, high margin items, that alone can tell you that this is potentially a really high value shopper. And so um, there are techniques that are even anonymous based. You know, if you have shoppers shopping in certain areas of the store without knowing anything else about them, that may tell you that they're a potential high value customer. So um, you can get that even off of an electronic trail. So it depends. It depends on your store. It depends on the shopper. But, you know, there are a range of techniques. In some cases, you're going to have to de-anonymize the person. That's usually mobile app or a tie at point of sale. But in other cases, just their instant store behavior will be enough to give you a pretty good clue that they're a high value shopper. Excellent. And I also want to reinforce that we're talking about retail stores a lot, but this also applies to uh, stadiums, airports, any public space where people are moving through and you want to give them a good experience. These same methodologies apply. That's totally true. So Gary, did I miss anything in that section? No, no, I don't think so. I, I, I just I want to emphasize that last point about Stores are a core part of what we do, but there are lots of really complex experiences out there. And 
most airports these days actually have at least some kinds of this measurement um, so they can understand their performance relative to things like queue control. Um, that's super interesting. And, and of course, what's interesting about airports, too, is they have a secondary application here, which I don't know if people know this, but retail in airports is booming. It's one of the healthiest sectors of retail around. And one of the things most airports are really interested in, yeah, yeah, it's, real, it's really peculiar, right? But it's this huge captive population. People want People do kill a lot of time in airports, and, and in-airport retail is actually extremely healthy growth sector. And one of the things a lot of airports are interested in is how can they build that experience? How can they get shoppers to the store? What's the design of the retail, and how should the retail be configured to optimize people going in and using those retail experiences in airports? So that's another place where it's kind of a blend of the people movement, but also some of the classic retail problems. And airports have, have that problem, interestingly enough, not something I ever would have realized two years ago. Oh, very nice. Very nice. So uh, in terms of what people should do next, we talked about understanding the use cases. You really have to go into what am I going to use this for? How am I going to apply all this great information? What is it that I care about right now? Or what is it that my organization really cares about? And then maybe branch out into some of the broader applications. And then we talked about the technology. And then, of course, hey, call Digital Mortar. Uh, (laughs) And and uh, I want to restate your email address. I mean, not not to promote you too heavily, Gary, but the um, the email for Gary was Gary.angel at digitalmortar.com. Gary.angel at digitalmortar.com. Fantastic. Okay, Gary, I really enjoyed talking to you. And, you know, every time we talk, there's always a, a new level of understanding that I come to in terms of tracking and analysis and retail. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, my pleasure, Alice. And I, likewise, it is so fun to talk to you again. I, I miss having you around all the time. I loved our chats. And this, this has been great. Good, good. As always, everything we discuss is at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. Our show notes for this show will be quite extensive, including a variety of links to things that we talked about. And Gary, if you'll send me a couple links to the technology that you mentioned on the Digital Mortar blog, we'll link to those as well. I think that'd be great for the audience. Remember, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It's not magic, just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is your host, Allison Hartzell, and I have two gifts for you. First, I've written a guide for the customer-centric CMO, which contains some of the best ideas from this podcast, and you can receive it right now. Simply text Ambition Data, one word, to 31996. And after you get that white paper, you'll have the option for the second gift, which is to receive the signal. Once a month, I put together a list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are making amazing progress as they build customer equity. I hope you enjoy the CMO guide and the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.